everyone. It is uh, so good to be with you today. My name is Ethan Magnus. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, glad for the opportunity to worship with you today. Boy, if you're a guest here with us today, uh, we just want to say welcome to you. I know some of you, this is probably your second time at Mountain. You might become, maybe you came last week for Easter and you're coming back just to kind of see what things are like on a normal weekend. And it's good. Uh, yeah, you see no props here on stage, a little more safety, no safety goggles or equipment needed today. Uh, so, hey, but we did have a great weekend last weekend. I know a bunch of you were here with us last weekend. It was amazing. Twelve services in three locations. It was incredible. Uh, if you were traveling last weekend and you missed it, I just want to urge you, go online, check out the video. It was such a blessing. Uh, it was a blessing to me just to be reminded. Uh, in fact, I'm so committed to wanting you to see it that I want to show you a little thing. One of our video people uh, took Ben's whole sermon and turned it into a minute and 30 seconds. Uh, I, I don't know how she could do it and he couldn't. I'm not saying anything. Got no comment on that. But anyways, I want you to check this out right here. Check this out. We begin to look into this mirror where we see ourselves as we're created, this beloved child of God. And, and yet, you know what happens? Is we hear that voice, you know, and we remember it. And it goes right on to our image. Someone told us we're a loser, we believe it, it becomes part of who we are, it just marks us. But you're always, you're always lusting the stuff that you don't think God sees, or you're just so broken. We get to the place where we look in the mirror and we can't even see the version of us that God created in the first place. When, when, I, try to, when I try to clean up my own act, I try to do the right stuff, I, I go to church a whole bunch or whatever, it's like I try to take it in my own hands. I'm just going to, well, I know, it, looks, it ends up looking like this. I just make it worse. I'm just going to whitewash everything over. Yeah, that'll be fine. And see, Easter is about God wanting to reclaim. You can't even see yourself. Easter is about God wanting to reclaim and redeem and restore you back to the original you that you're supposed to be. The resurrection, friends, is not about you, you know, cleaning up your mirror. It's about God destroying that mirror because the old is gone. And the new has come. And there you are. Look at that. Therefore, if Ben is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. Now live like it. Amen. Wasn't that a great week? Amen. Um, we may, we may just play that three or four more times during the service today. I don't know. I, I think we probably can't, but I feel like I need to hear that about every 20 minutes, don't you? Uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. I want to hear that. Uh, listen, some of you have people that you wish could hear that message. They need to be reminded that it's not about them whitewashing their mirror. It's not about them doing a lot of stuff. It's about them letting Christ remake them with resurrection power. Uh, that little video is shareable. Uh, so if you do that whole social media thing, uh, you can go on to, uh, if you've got like the Facebook thing or the tweeting and all that, um, you can go on to Mountain's Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash mountaincc. You can find the video there. If you're following along with version right now, the little app that has all my notes on it so you know what I'm going to say before I say it, um, the link is in there directly to the video. We want you to get this video. We want you to share it. So if that's a helpful tool to you as you want to tell your friends about what God can do for their 
their lives. Boy, we hope we'll just use that and just forward that all around so that lots of people uh, can experience that. So last week, we reminded ourselves that Jesus Christ died, was dead, rose again, appeared in the power of the resurrection, and because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, resurrection is possible in our lives too. But it turns out that the implications of the resurrection move beyond just one guy back in history rising from the dead. They move beyond just you or me in our own lives experiencing resurrection. It turns out that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes the way God's people. It changes us not just as individuals, but as a community. And as we turn to the next chapter of the story, that's exactly what begins to happen. We're moving to a new section of the story. We've been following along the story now for 20-some-odd weeks. If you're just joining us, that's all right. You'll catch up fast because we're starting a brand-new stage of the story. Chapter 8, something brand-new, chapter 28, rather, something brand-new begins. And I'm pretty excited about what begins here because the part that starts in chapter 28, it's our part. This is the part about us. Have you ever done that little thing where you're with your family and you're telling stories from the old days, you know, about great uncle Hal and great grandpa so-and-so and all these things? And the kids are kind of milling around, totally ignoring what's going on. And maybe you've got slides up and you're trying to get them excited about, oh, look, here are pictures from your great aunt's college graduation. And they're like, really? I don't even know who any of those people are. And then you finally work your way up to their baby pictures. And all of a sudden the kids are like, ooh, that's so neat. Oh, I love that. That's this. That's today. Today is where we see our baby pictures. This is our chapter that starts today because now we make it to the church. So perk up and pay attention because this is your story. This is the story about the kind of people we're called to be, the kind of place this is meant by God to be, the kind of impact God wants us to have in the world. And I think it's a timely story for us. Because I think we're at a moment where the church is sort of confused about itself. I I don't know, you know, I'm no great church historian, so I don't know if the church really is more threatened now than it used to be. Probably not. But it sure feels like it, doesn't it? It feels like there there are external threats to the church that just didn't used to be there. Like cultural artifacts are, are lining up to oppose the values and the commitment to the church. Like institutions are arising and people are asking, what's the church good for? Does the church really have any purpose or function in our society? To the outside, I think sometimes the church just looks like some sort of country club for Jesus' people. and They're not really sure that we do any good or that it's worth all that use of land and money just for a church. I don't know. I think on the inside sometimes we're a little anxious about the church too. You know, the the global church is divided over theology and practice more and more every year, it seems. Many who claim to represent the church treat the world with with a kind of hate that doesn't represent what I think the church is supposed to be doing at all. And thousands of churches are closing their doors every year. And thousands more, in an attempt to keep their doors open have closed themselves in, just kind of we'll do our own little thing and they'll do their thing and we'll do ours and we'll be sure not to bother anybody and maybe they won't bother us. 
I don't know if there ever was a day when the church and the world really knew what the church was for, but if there ever was such a day, I know it's not today. If you're, if you're a guest with us today, maybe you're here for the second time, like I said, boy, we're so glad you're here. And if you showed up today wondering, what in the world is a church for? Man, I think that's a good question. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure we always live in such a way that it makes the answer very clear. And maybe, though, you're not a guest. Maybe you've been here five or six years. Maybe you've been here 15 or 20 years, and you're wondering the same thing. What is the church for? Why do we keep doing all this stuff, this, this thing we do, getting together on the weekend, singing a bunch of songs, passing a bunch of trays around? Is this why Jesus died on the cross? I think these are good questions. I think if, if we're going to invest in this thing that we call the church the way we do, we've got to know what it's for. I joined, a, I joined a club my sophomore year of college. It was a hiking club. And what we did was we had meetings where we planned hikes. That's it. That's all we did. We didn't actually hike, see? That was the problem with this hiking club. And so I quit the hiking club. Did I dislike the people? No, I liked the people. They were some of my very good friends. Did I dislike our mission? No, I actually valued the mission. The problem was we didn't do the thing we said we existed to do, and so I quit. And, you know, I think whether you're on the outside looking in or on the inside looking out, I think we've got to wonder, are we a hiking club that just plans hikes and doesn't actually hike? So if you're here today wondering, what's the church for? I got some great news for you. It turns out that at the beginning of the church, Christ was really clear with them about what they were for. And as they lived in that clarity, what we see is that God was really faithful to let them get done the thing God told them to do. And so if you'll just go, go with me for a little bit, back into the story. If you already read chapter 28, we're not going to talk about anything you didn't read. But if you haven't read it, you'll get to catch up with the rest of us. What you're going to see is that there was a moment of great clarity about the purpose and role of the church. And in the context of that clarity, God did some amazing, amazing things. It starts with this really simple question. So the disciples are talking to Jesus. He's been resurrected now 38, 39 days, something like that. He's about to ascend to the Father. He tells them that. He's almost done. They're chatting, and they say this. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? All those poor, stupid disciples. Oh my goodness, dude rises from the dead and they're still wondering when he's going to, you know, kick some tail and take some names and drive those Romans out and establish his rule and reign. They wonder, is this the time when you take power? Is this the time? Maybe you could put us in charge. All we want people to do is to serve you as the king. We know you are. If you just put us in charge, we'd make them do it. And Jesus says this, it's not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in all Judea 
and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They ask him, Jesus, you say you're going to leave. What's going to happen next? And he says, this is what's going to happen next. You'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Now, as we watch the text unfold, we're going to learn a lot about the nature of the power they're going to receive. For now, I just want us to notice one thing. The power out of which the church will grow is the power that it receives from God. The power out of which the church will grow is not its own power, not the power it musters up under its own strength, but the power it receives from God. And the second thing we've got to notice is the mandate that that power will empower. And that is the mandate to be a witness. Now, in Christian circles, this word witness has gotten unnecessarily confused. It's a relatively simple term. We now take it to mean something like, you know, going out and telling your neighbor's stuff or passing out tracts at the mall or something like that. And I'm not saying those activities have no role in witness, but I'm saying by narrowing the term down to that, we've actually lost sight of the much clearer definition of the word. And we know this word already, so it won't be hard for you to remember. This is a relatively common word in their language as it is in ours. We use it in the context of the courtroom, right? Counselor, call your first witness. And in that context, what is a witness? It's just somebody who knows something relevant to the case who's been brought to talk about it. It might be an eyewitness who's seen something relevant to the case. It might be an expert witness who knows something relevant to the case. It might be a forensic witness who's studied and examined something relevant to the case. But in any case, a witness is someone who has seen something or knows something who then testifies to what they have seen and know. You don't bring people in to be witnesses who have seen nothing and know nothing and just tell them testify. And you're not a witness just because you saw it until you do testify. We forget this sometimes in the context of the church. We think maybe what we're called to do is to be in our own right so awesome that people will be impressed with Jesus because of how impressive we are. But no, a witness is not impressive in their own right. You don't call witnesses because they're so special. You call witnesses because what they've seen is so special. Because what they've seen matters to you. A witness is one who has a testimony. A witness is not a meritorious category. A witness is merely one who has seen what must be told. And that's what God's power is for us to be. We've got to notice he doesn't say you'll receive power so your lives will be super awesome. He doesn't say you'll receive power so you can fix everything or have the power to make everyone agree with you. He says you will be given power, the power of the Holy Spirit, so that your lives can point to me and you will be my witnesses. That's what Jesus says is going to happen. And then you read the chapter. All of this is taken from the first ten chapters of the book of Acts in the Bible. You read the Bible after Jesus makes that promise, and guess what you find out? That's exactly what happens. It's amazing. 
They wait in a room praying for God's power, just like he told them. And then God's power comes, the power to speak miraculously in the languages of all those who have gathered to celebrate Pentecost. And the people ask, what is this great thing? And Peter responds by witnessing. Not to his power or his greatness. Or look at me, I can now talk in lots of languages at once. No, what does he witness to? To Jesus Christ. Go look at Acts chapter 2, read the whole sermon. I just want to point you to a few things. He says this, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses to it. We saw it and now we're here to tell you about it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out on us what you now see and hear. At the end of this sermon, he says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The people were cut to the heart and they asked, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will will call. And with many words he warned them. And that day 3,000 were added to their number. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And it just kept happening. It happened again in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are heading up to the temple to pray as was their habit. Along the way they meet a lame man who asks them for money. They don't have any money. So Peter says, I don't have any money but I'll give you what I can. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Now that's power. That is power, church. And do you know what that power is for? It's not complicated. Jesus was very clear. The power is that they might witness, which is exactly what they did. They walked right into the temple and began to proclaim that it was by God's power they did this, not their own. They say, don't look at us. Like by our own power, we made this man walk. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know is made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. As you all can see, they received power and they were witnesses and it just kept happening. My favorite prayer meeting in all of Scripture, I love this prayer meeting, not long after the thing where they heal the lame man, Peter and John get brought in and threatened by the leaders of Jerusalem. And they end this. They can't press a charge that day. They just say, listen, here's our rule. You have to stop talking about Jesus or there's going to be trouble. And so Peter and John go back and they gather with the disciples and they start praying over this new circumstance where they've been threatened by the rulers of the city. And I'm going to tell you about their prayer in just a second. But first I want to tell you about the conversation that I imagine. Now this didn't actually happen. It's not in the Bible. This is just what I imagine. I imagine Peter and John lay out the situation. Here's the deal. They say if we keep talking about Jesus, we are going to be in trouble. And I imagine some joker from the back of the room stood up and said, Dude! We serve Jesus. He rose from the dead. What are they going to do? Kill us? Ooh. Right? You see, if you're a resurrection people, what threat do they have left? We're going to stone you. Dude, Jesus can handle that. We're going to cut your head off. He can handle that. We're going to crucify you. You tried that once. It didn't work. And here's what they pray. Listen to what they pray. They pray this prayer. Now, Lord... 
Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Man, I love that prayer. I think if they'd let me stand up at the end of that prayer meeting, I'm going to pray, now, Lord, consider their threats and protect us from those bad people. Now, Lord, consider their threats and give us a safe way out of the city. Now, Lord, consider their threats and remind Peter and John to keep their bleeping mouths shut so we don't get in trouble. But that's not what they pray because they knew Jesus promised, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. So they say, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants. That's a prayer for God's power. To speak your word with great boldness. That's a prayer that they could be witnesses. And it just kept happening. These people were so imbued with the power of God and so committed to witnessing, even their daily lives were a power-filled act of witness. The text tells us that they lived together in such a way that no one needed anything. They shared all their possessions. This is the way it says it. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. With great power, they continued to testify to the resurrection. Now, does that include what they said? Obviously, these dudes preached sermons at the drop of the hat. But it wasn't just what they said. In fact, it says that God's grace was precisely the power that enabled them to share their possessions so completely that no one in their community had any need. You know, you read the Bible sometimes and you wonder, okay, dude, did that really happen? You know, I know people, they get all kind of freaked out. Like, did somebody really walk on water? I don't know. This is what gets me. I read this. I'm like, really? Like, they share their possessions that much? Because I haven't met anybody who lives like that. This is the kind of miracle I get skeptical of. Except not long ago, we got a letter from a guy here at Mountain who visited some Christians in Swaziland in Africa. Listen to what he wrote back about this church. This is like a today church, right? Not like a back then church. This is a today church. Here's what he wrote. He describes in great detail their worship service. I'm just going to cut to the chase. Towards the end of their worship, people continued to sing hymns or choruses as they rose to depart. But first they circled the rooms several times as they sang. I watched as people began placing objects in the center of the room. A couple of eggs, a few avocados, an empty two-liter Coke bottle still with a cap that could be used for gathering water, a few articles of clothing that children had outgrown, a plastic food container, a taper candle, a box of matches, a mat of woven grass, many objects that we might have thrown away. And as people circled and sang, the items that had been deposited were gradually picked up by others. As each person in the church had excess, they gave. As they had need, they received. And I saw this practice in multiple churches that I visited, living out the church of the book of Acts. That's happening today. Talk about a witness. Talk about being empowered to witness because if you believe your God can rise, raise you from the dead, are you really worried about going without two eggs so that your neighbor might have enough to food? 
And it, oh, it just keeps happening. I want to tell you all these stories. This one time, Peter and John, they get put in prison. An angel comes. He breaks them out of jail. And he says, I want you to, now that you're free from jail, go back and preach. Which is the very thing they were put in jail for in the first place. God's power comes so that they might witness. Even their enemies knew what was happening. This great conversation with Gamaliel, he explains to the people, I think we've got to back off these uh, Jesus follower types. We've seen this thing before. A teacher arises. He gets really popular. His followers cause a little trouble. The teacher dies. The whole thing dies with him. And then he gives this profound advice. He says, Therefore, in this present case, that is the trouble with all these Jesus people, I advise you to leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose and activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. You see, Gamaliel was a guy who understood human power. He understood wars. He understood empires. He understood politics. He understood religious power. And he understood that all kinds of human power could be dealt with and would eventually fail under their own weight because human initiative always does. But he also was just wise enough to know that if by chance this Jesus thing was of God, they couldn't stop it if they tried. They might as well get out of the way. They didn't take of his advice, of course. Persecution just got worse. This guy named Stephen gets arrested on trumped-up charges. How could our God use that? How could God empower that moment as an act of witness? Well, here's how. They had a big public trial followed by a big public stoning. And every minute of that public spectacle, Stephen used to witness for God. And then the worst thing happens. The persecution gets so intense that the Christians are driven from Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1 tells this, On that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What was it Jesus said? You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They've been stuck in Jerusalem all this time. And God, through God's power, for the purpose of witness to Christ, uses even persecution to drive them out. And look, just three verses later, in chapter 8, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip, for instance, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. God's power. It's not the power to achieve fame or glory. It's not the power to achieve ease or comfort. It's not the power to achieve prosperity or wealth. It's not the power to success or perfect health. It turns out God's power is the power to be a witness to the resurrected Lord in the midst of a world that desperately needs to know that death has been defeated and that the grave has already lost and God's victory has already won. Again and again, Jesus promise is proven true you will receive power when the holy spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in judea and in samaria and to the ends of the earth and again and again when a witness was needed god's power is there for them 
I want you to hear that promise that we see proved true in Acts again and again in the moment where a witness is needed. God's power was sufficient for the witness to Christ. And it's some kind of power. It's nothing like the power of the world. It's nothing like the power that we sometimes crave. It is not the power to coerce, but it is the power to resist coercion. It is not the power to abuse or control, but it is the power to stand up faithfully against abuse. It is never the power to dominate, but it is the power to stand against oppression and to stand with the oppressed. It is not the power to imprison, but again and again, it is the power to sing the praise and glory of God while you are shackled to the walls. And sometimes it's even the power to get released from prison that you can walk back into the temple courts and preach the new life of the resurrected Jesus. You see, they had such amazing power, and it was the power for the one central purpose to which God had called him, and that was the power to be a witness to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is our story. Remember, this isn't the previous chapter. This is our chapter. This is actually our power. And this is our mandate. This is what our moment so desperately needs. It needs a church that is so receptive to God's power flowing through it that it is so enabled to be a witness to the glory and work of Christ. You see, listen, there are, there are lots of other kinds of power. I, I know that, and, and I, I'll be honest, I personally find these other kinds of power desperately tempting. And these other kinds of power that are available in the world, you can get a lot done. These other kinds of power are very effective. You just can't witness to Christ through these other kinds of power. I mean, think about political power. Political power, you can get a lot done with political power. You muster enough political power, you can begin to order the laws the way you want them to be. Order the tax structure the way you want them to be. You can improve the roads, by all means. Please, improve the roads if you get some political power, by all means. You can do so many things through the You can become the master of the universe. But the one thing you can't do through political power is bear witness to the one who said, my kingdom is not of this world. So you can do other good things. By all means, go do those other good things. But don't think that it is your political power that is your witness to Christ. Uh, there, there are other powers we Christians, we, we sometimes like to use the power of withdrawal, the power of isolation. Pull away from those corrupting influences. Pull away from those things that we're just sure are far from God. We build a parallel society of Christian books and Christian plays and Christian music and Christian movies and Christian restaurants and Christian soccer teams. And there are so many things you can do with the power of isolation. So many things that can be preserved through the power of isolation. The one thing you can't do, though, is be a witness for Jesus Christ who did not consider his position with God something to be held on to, but instead emptied himself of that and came to be with us, to get dirty with us, to live in the world with us, to be incarnate among us. You can't be a witness to that while you excel in the power of withdrawal and isolation. Oh, there's so much power in the power of shame and guilt and fear. You can get a lot done 
with the power of shame and guilt and fear. You can affect people's behavior. You can change how they act and change how they think. You can get them to do what you wish they should do instead of what they think they should do. You can even get them to do good things through the, through the right application of the power of shame and guilt and fear. There's just one thing you cannot do through the power of shame and guilt and fear. And that's bear witness to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came so that we might be justified, declared not guilty through the blood of the Lamb before a holy God. The one who came and welcomed sinners and ate with them. The one for whom, when the angels came to announce his presence, had to start with the words, Do not be afraid because a Savior has come. You can do a lot with the power of guilt and shame and fear. You just can't bear witness to that risen Lord. But the good news is, all those powers, those are the powers that we have as human people. Those are the powers that the world offers to us. They aren't the power that God promises to give us. The power that God grants to us is the power to love and heal and suffer and be patient and to weep with those who weep and to laugh with those who laugh and have joy and pain. We, as God's resurrection people, have the power to walk with anybody through the very valley of the shadow of death. And fear no evil, because our God is with us, and our God rose from the dead. You see, the resurrection didn't just mean Jesus was alive. It didn't just mean you can be alive in Jesus. It meant we now as a people have the power to bear witness to the fact that resurrection is real and Christ has come. And when the church, like it did in the first chapters of Acts, when it lives in light of that power, the power that God offers to us and that we receive through His Holy Spirit, and not in light of its own power, when it does that, the church is the witness that Christ has called us to be. The church is the witness that Jesus Christ has come that Jesus Christ has lived and offered forgiveness to all people, that Jesus Christ has died, that the penalty of our sin might be paid, that Jesus Christ has risen and death has been broken, that Jesus Christ has ascended and awaits to return in glory for all those who would follow him. When we live in the power of God's love for the world, when we live in the power that can bear suffering and pain and still trust and sing in the praises of God, when we live in that power, we are the witnesses God has called us to be, and the world needs that kind of witness. You see, here's the thing. The world desperately needs someone who can tell it what they've seen. Like a hungry person needs to be told where to find bread, like a thirsty person needs to be told where the river of life is the world needs someone who says I have seen a dead person come back to life in Christ I have seen a sinner be forgiven in Christ I have seen the weak made strong in Christ I have seen dead marriages restored to life in Christ I stand as a witness to the power of God and because I am a witness 
to God's forgiveness, I'll forgive. Because I'm a witness to God's love, I will love. Because I'm a witness to God's mercy, I will be merciful. For I have seen unspeakably wonderful things, and as God gives my tongue the power, I will speak of what I have seen. My life was changed. I heard this sermon one time. In fact, the first time, I didn't even hear it. I just read the sermon And it it changed the trajectory of my understanding of what God was calling us to be. It was a sermon Martin Luther King preached. Uh, It's called often his Christmas Peace Sermon of 1967. You can go Google Christmas Peace 1967 MLK. You'll find it. It's an amazing sermon. I I wish I had time to read the whole thing. I don't. I'm just going to read one little bit. Here's what it says. Right in the middle he says this. Somehow we must be able to stand up before our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, we will love you. Throw us in jail, we will love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will also so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. That articulation that King has, that is just not his, that's not just his strategy for nonviolent resistance. That isn't just the theory that lies behind the American Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. That is a present articulation of exactly what Christ meant when he said, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. It's not the power to do all the things that the world's power offers us. It's precisely the power to bear out the love of God in such a way that even those who resist us are captivated and brought to that love. That's what a witness for Christ looks like. We need to be very clear about what it is our world needs. Our world does not need more accusers. There are plenty of accusers. Our world does not need more skeptics. There are plenty of skeptics. Our world does not need more judges or nannies or critics or hermits, or despisers, or mockers, or betrayers. Our world needs witnesses who by the power of the Holy Spirit have seen the forgiving, loving, merciful resurrection work of God and as God gives them opportunity, tell people about it. And let me not be vague Because the world is an awful amorphous place. When we say the world here, remember what Jesus said, you'll receive power, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I have a secret for you. You live at the ends of the earth. Your neighborhood is the ends of the earth. Your office is the ends of the earth. This is going to be amazing. Your school cafeteria is the ends of the earth. Some of you are in middle school, even middle school cafeterias. In fact, they may be precisely the very ends of the earth. 
right? Your uh, soccer team, your PTA, your knitting group, your cul-de-sac, your living room, your basement, your backyard, your neighbor's backyard. That's where the ends of the earth is. Those are the places that need a witness. And they need your witness. They need you as an expression, as an embodiment of God's power to love and heal and forgive and proclaim life out of death as a witness to Jesus Christ. And if that thought, if the thought that your backyard and your living room and your lunchroom and your office might be the place where you're called to witness, if that thought fills you with terror, then let me remind you of the first half of Christ's promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you might be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, go there if you get the chance. In Judea, I've heard it's a beautiful place to visit. Samaria, it's underrated in my opinion. The views are lovely. And the ends of the earth. You're going to be there in like five minutes. Let's pray. Oh God, recover in us the clarity your people had in those early days. Recover in us the certainty that it was out of your power and your power alone that we must live. And it was as witnesses of you and for no other goal that we must act. Recover for us that clarity, God, that as we go forth from this place today, we might be your witnesses, empowered by your spirit and for your glory now until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.